Okay, we're recording. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. This will be our forced, fourth discussion of his books. He's written over 50 books, so he has a very long resume or CV. His name is Dr. Jerry Bergman, and today we're going to talk about one of his books titled Darwinian Eugenics and the Holocaust, American Industrial Involvement. It's kind of a follow-on to an earlier discussion we had on August 21st, 2021, about another book titled Hitler and the Nazi Darwinian Worldview, How the Nazi Eugenic Crusade for a Superior Race Caused the Greatest Holocaust in World History. So you can go back and take a look at that. And we've also done two other discussions. We talked last week about Eisenhower, his book on Eisenhower and his faith, Christian faith, and also The Dark Side of Darwin, a critical analysis of an icon of silence science, which um, is very critical of Darwin, I think, uh, very appropriately. But again, we're going to talk about this book today titled Darwinian Eugenics and the Holocaust, American Industrial Involvement. Dr. Jerry Bergman, are you there? It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview and thanks for coming back on the show. For people who may not have heard the earlier three discussions we had, maybe you could talk a little bit about the arc of your research and what led you to write this book, Darwinian Eugenics and the Holocaust. Well, I was concerned about the, as many people are today, even today, about the causes of the Darwinian revolution, as well as the effects of the Darwinian revolution. And one effect which has been written a fair amount about is, of course, the Nazi movement. And uh, in fact, I have a friend of mine that is coming out with a new book, which documents indeed the importance of Darwinism in the development of Nazism. And uh, I, I suppose my background being German, my relatives in German, and relatives on both sides of the war, and relatives in Germany that fought in the war, and then of course for the Nazi side, and then I have relatives in America that fought for uh, the American side. And so <laughs> not sure why <laughs> there's so much uh, concern about this, partially because many people around today, at least their relatives or their grandparents or parents were part of World War II. And, uh, and for some reason, it's a fascinating area because, well, so many people were involved. It was a much greater World War than World War I. And as a result, a lot of people have, find, have it, found it very interesting. And in fact, among the, my best sellers are the books that I wrote about Nazism. Right. And that I mean, includes the first one, the influence of Darwinism in Nazism, and uh, had a very clear influence, although indirect. We don't know that uh, Hitler read any of Darwin's works. He probably didn't. Uh, but Darwin had a lot of influence on Germany, German scientists, and those scientists then had a lot of influence in turn on Adolf Hitler. So the ideas were clearly there. Hitler made it very clear what he was trying to do, wanted a superior race. Right, and you show also show that I mean in this book that he he was either exposed to or read stuff by Henry Ford. He was a real admirer of Henry Ford, who was an admirer of Darwin and kind of a very uh, vicious anti-Semite. So he, Hitler and Hitler and, and Ford kind of were similar. I was I was surprised to learn that how much he loved Ford. He had a picture of Ford on his desk. You wrote um, really remarkable stuff. So the U.S. influenced even before World War II or World War I, a lot of the thinking on eugenics, correct? Oh yeah, it was a strong influence. And 
you need to understand all the factors that were involved in causing World War II. And one of the factors is, of course, America. In fact, during the Nuremberg trials, they relied heavily upon American judicial decisions and the American uh, ideas and American lawyers and American legal uh, supplements. In fact, this is one of their main defenses. They say, why do you blame us for what happened when we got a lot of these ideas directly from you? And therefore that was, they thought a good defense, but of course they carried them far beyond what we did. We may have prevented people from coming into this country and we may have sterilized 100,000 or so people, but we didn't directly kill anyone in camps. So there was a difference, but on the other hand, there were similarities. Right. I mean, and you talk about Oliver Wendell Holmes and his decision in Buck. Maybe a lot of Americans haven't heard that story. Maybe you can talk about that and how that seeded European ideas. Well, this was basically where the American eugenicists were trying to legalize, I find support for what they were doing for sterilizing people they thought were inferior because they believed at that time that the problem we have in our society, a major problem is that inferior people give rise to inferior children and thus adults. And so you wanna stem the problem from the origin, which is of course the inferior people. And back then, of course, education was not as pervasive as today. So there are a lot of people that you might judge inferior and, and they did. And the Buck family was one, the mother and the daughter, uh, Carrie Buck. And so therefore this family was looked at as kind of a test case. And so they went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court basically said, what, three generations of imbeciles are enough. We've got to stem the tide of these inferior people. And now we recognize that the, the Buck family were deprived educationally, socially, etc. But as once said, you play against them in a, a good game of, of, uh, of uh, bridge, right? Bridge, then you're going to have a hard time. You can have a challenge that as right. many people have talents in certain areas, but all of us don't have talents in every area. And again, the major problem here was the poor environment they were part of. They were poor and lack of education. And as a result, they appeared to be not too intelligent, but of course, by and large, probably most of these who were sterilized were of average intelligence if they would have had the environment that would have managed to nurture that intelligence, but they didn't, so. Right, involuntary ster sterilization was a practice here in the United States. A lot of people don't know that. That uh, happened in California too, with some of these characters who came back from uh, Germany or, or were cross-fertilized in Germany. But Holmes also was a very kind of stalwart Darwin. He believed that life is a constant struggle. It sounds just like Hitler. The struggle exactly. for life is the order of the world. So yep. Hitler didn't come up with these positions in some vacuum. No, they didn't. And uh, so many of the ideas that were developed by Darwin and his uh, cousin, uh, his cousin, which are several of the Darwinists were involved actually in the Darwinian movement. Wasn't it Huxley? Yeah, was it uh, the bulldog? Huxley? Was he a yeah, cousin? Huxley the bulldog, right. So uh, Darwin wasn't exactly a aggressive person in speaking to groups. And so if he was shy and retiring in many ways, he spent his time doing writing. And so as a result, he wanted to, uh, and others wanted support and support was people like Huxley and so on. And they were forward in aggressively supporting the Darwinian worldview. And one of the other proponents was a figure 
a lot of people know or should know is H.G. Wells. Can you talk about his importance in promoting H.G. Wells became, as time went on, he became a very aggressive Darwinist, wrote a number of books. Uh, of course, he was well known for his fiction writing, and he sold a number of, of books relative to his ideas of War of the Worlds. And uh, it, one of his more successful nonfiction books was basically a, a history of the world. And in that history of the world, basically, he talked about Darwin quite extensively. And he wrote several other books, which, of course, also deal with Darwin. He was a very aggressive pusher of Darwinism. And uh, he's read by so many people. He was highly respected. And so naturally, he's going to have influence, had quite a bit of influence in uh, the people in not only in England, but also in America. He was one of the leading, of course, science fiction writers. And right. Super influential. Yeah. Very influential. Influential on people like Orwell. But also not only was he influential on somebody here in the States, but he was the lover of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, right? Yeah, yeah, and Margaret Sanger was another one who led this movement, and basically her concern as well was inferior people, especially Blacks, he thought, she thought were inferior, and that's why most of the Planned Parenthood uh, organization centers were in big cities in Black neighborhoods, because she basically wanted to eliminate inferior people, and among the inferior people was... Uh, Blacks and others as well, but her concern was to make a better world. And a lot of these people had good intentions. They want to make a better world. And the process, the way they did it, of course, is what caused the problem, not so much their end ideal goal. And that's true of Margaret Sanger. She realized a lot of children are born in environments that were poor, that uh, the parents were not able to take care of them. And so she felt, you know, they'd be better off aborted. And so then she became part of the abortion movement. She also was quite promiscuous. If you read much about him, you realize that H.G. Uh, Wells and uh, Margaret Sanger were both quite promiscuous, and they therefore wanted to have sex and have their fun, but yet not pay the consequences, which, of course, occasionally was pregnancy. And right, that, so that uh, was their kind of Darwinian view, like H.G. Uh, Wells was a Christian, then he becomes a Darwin, and it's like he has an open relationship or marriage or something like that, and Sanger herself is all over the place, and I mean, it just shows the the eugenics ideas are still present in 2021. Planned Parenthood is, you can find outposts of Planned Parenthood all the time. And the, I think they're even being funded by the United States, by the government, right? Yeah, Planned Parenthood has a lot of support from the government and other organizations. And the interesting thing about Planned Parenthood is that a number of the clinics were named after Margaret Sanger. But since it's come out quite openly that indeed she was a aggressive racist Therefore, some of the Planned Parenthood clinics, I understand, want to remove her name from the name of the clinic and just call it the Planned Parenthood, I guess. In fact, yeah. the name Planned Parenthood was came up with as a nicer term instead of abortion clinics. So they call themselves Planned Parenthood, and that's a, a nicer, safer name. And so they use that name instead of the more honest name, which is really uh, abortion clinics. Which right. is what no, and they've done millions and millions, <clears throat> millions and millions of abortions. I know people who've been there to... Uh, you know, get health, uh, birth, birth products and all kinds of stuff. Like, so they're still active today. And I think Hillary Clinton really was an admirer of Margaret Sanger too. So some of these people who are politicians now are out and out stating they're part of that continuum going back to Darwin through H.G. Wells, et cetera, here in the United States, not just in Germany. Yeah, and finally, but it's finally coming out. But. Yeah, finally. Yeah, right. Um, and also you talk, can you talk about kind of, you know, there's a section in your book about 
the foundations of the Nazi Holocaust, something that I didn't really know. And I think it goes to the point that Hitler didn't come, his ideas didn't come out of a vacuum. But what happened in Namibia and some of these characters, Goring's dad, and what happened down there is kind of a predicate to the horrors of the Holocaust. Can you talk about that? Yeah, they took, they had several colonies in Africa and it would be uh, Southwest Africa. And in these colonies, they <laughs> had a hard time getting the native people to cooperate. And uh, as a result, they ended up slaughtering massive numbers of the native people. And that was again, a foreshadowing the later Holocaust, which occurred in Nazi Germany. And as far as I know, pretty much they got away with the murders of these people. And as a result, they've kind of felt, well, gee, we did it down there without a problem. Why not just do it in our own country? They tried to keep somewhat secret, but it was well known. Indeed, in America, by, by the, what, 39, 40, 41, that indeed they were murdering huge numbers of people who were specifically murdered because of their background, their religion, Jews primarily, but also Slavics. And so it wasn't a the information was there, although I, there was, people had a hard time believing what was going on was indeed going on. And so that was a problem. Just people would mention it and they would say, oh, that couldn't be true. But I have headlines from newspapers in the early 40s that basically talked about the Holocaust and what they were doing to Jews and other people. So it was out there. But again, it's you don't talk about those things in polite company. Right. So it was kind of a secret. But they I mean, it just shows what happened in in. in Africa was kind of like the same sensibility. You see the Darwinian approach. These are inferior. The proof of our validity is our triumph over them. So if we are the winners, then we've won the Dar Darwinian evolutionary worldview. So it's proof, success is that proof that we are the highest expression of human beings. I think that that was there. And I mean, it was remarkable that Goring's father who is in, is really one of the war criminals of World War II was there in Africa doing those things that uh, the Germans would later do in World War II. Yeah, that's true. One thing that intrigued me was the important cooperation they had with IBM or IBM subsidiaries, of course. And if you think about it, when you're fighting a war, you've got to bring the troops and supplies to Russia. Plus you have to send millions of Jews to concentration camps. You had a problem with the trains. And they're able to deal with the conflicts they had with help of IBM. And so, if, in fact, it said if it wasn't for IBM, their punch cards, that they would not have been able to do nearly as much as they did. And there was a concern with what do we need more importantly? Do we need supplies for the troops or do we need to get the Jews in the concentration camps and eliminate the Jews from, the, from, your, from Europe? And in essence, the group pushing for elimination of the Jews won the day. And instead of sending supplies to the troops, they ended up using those train cars to send Jews, of course, to concentration camps. Now, a rational response would be, you've got all these Jews, why not put them in the army, give them uniforms, put them at the front lawn, and they can help fight us. And they did, of course, in World War I. The Jews were very supportive, in fact, more so than most Germans in World War I. And so therefore, why not utilize the Jews as, as a fodder, and if you want to kill them, then use them as fodder in the war. At least they'll be killed for some logical reason instead of just because they're Jews. But of course, they didn't do that, and therefore they ended up losing on both fronts because of uh, the decisions that were made. But Hitler often said that when 
we conquer Europe and much of the world, the world will thank us for the final elimination of this inferior race, the Jews. And we will look, be looked upon with, with admiration because of what we did and how important this was. And he's, now we're, we're, we may be condemned for it, but in the future, when they recognize the important role we played, then they will thank us for what we did. And so some of the German troops, of course, had a hard time with this mass shooting. And so therefore, Hitler said, well, in the long run, we will be proud of what we did. We were strong people, eliminated this terror from our world, and therefore made a much better world. But of course, it didn't turn out that way at all. But nonetheless, they had a lot of support in Germany for what they were doing among at least the hierarchy of the German government and academia as well. Yeah, no, it's really incredible. And uh, like there were times during World War II, I think it was the, it was in Hungary when they killed all the Jews in Budapest, they were losing the war, but still had resources to, to continue the Holocaust. So it was really was just a part of their warfare was this uh, genocide. And I was an interesting point you made in your book was after Darwin, it was only people got divided on physical traits such as skin, eye, hair color. Everybody used to be from a nation or from a place. And then Darwin comes along and then human beings start getting um, characterized. And can you talk about some of these characters who were in Germany who, who I mean, you expose them as being fraudsters on a pretty vast scale. Can you talk about some of the Darwinian influenced uh, uh, genetic fraudsters? Yeah, of course, groups have always been at war fighting with each other throughout history. And so that's not new. What's new is we're, we're basing the fighting after Darwin, we're basing the fighting on skin color, hair color, and so on. And that's a new, new idea because historically, one thing I've always been interested in is art, early art. And when you look at a lot of early art, it doesn't matter what country, but even in Europe, you notice that scattered among them were blacks. And so of course, Africa was right below Europe and therefore there are many blacks who came to Europe and were part of the culture. And they never saw these as really anybody different. Skin color wasn't, that wasn't important. Like hair color wasn't important. Eye color wasn't important. These were trivial traits, which were really not important. And so therefore throughout history, people did not judge by and large on skin color. Now for slavery, of course, when that came along, that was different. But on the other hand, they had many slaves that were whites. The difference was, of course, the whites had were slavery for seven years and then released, but many of the blacks were not. And so that became a different story as a result of skin color. But again, that wasn't really a problem until after what, the 1800s. And therefore, uh, it, we, we looked at people in a very different way. And wasn't there like an author there who had, it was either the, was it Freiherr or um, was one of these authors who had these pictures where he was he was manipulating things to to just show you know that africans were inferior or part of some other human kingdom or something like that and then it all turned out to be bogus right among others was heckel and heckel, heckel was a really good artist and so you can't excuse what he did on the basis of lack of artistic talent and among the things he did is he drew a evolution from an ape from an orangutan to a modern highly developed human, a Roman, actually he used a picture of a Roman. And so you could see the progression from an ape to a Roman. And at the middle of this, there was what, nine pictures, I think. At the middle of this set of pictures, 
you can see the transition from a very human looking like ape to a very ape looking like human. And so these pictures were used widely in textbooks throughout the United States and other countries. And so it appeared from these pictures that indeed that, yeah, there is a continuum from the lowest ape to the highest human. And these drawings, as you mentioned, were grossly distorted. They just, you don't see any human look like, looking like the ape that they drew, nor do you see an ape look like the human that they drew. And so therefore they were gross distortions. And these were very successful and used in American textbooks until probably the 40s or 50s. I have books, well, in the 60s actually, that had pictures of these supposed humans, which look very ape-like, primarily obviously Negro traits. And until Time Life magazine in their several of their books in the 60s had these pictures, which is pretty obvious. We're talking about apes, okay, evolving into humans. And there were those links in between, which had features of both humans and often Negroid features. So they saw Negroids as inferior until actually until the civil rights movement. And that changed everything drastically okay. because we recognize how racist and how wrong these, these pictures were. Right, and unscientific. I mean, that's the whole thing is that this is pseudoscience or scientism or something like that, which goes into a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of evolutionary Darwinism. Can you talk about Mengele and uh, I think it was his professor, Baron von Verschur and their how Darwin influenced them in their atrocities? Okay, Darwin influenced many of the professors in Germany. In fact, the University of Genua, uh, all the science professors, as far as we know, according to Heckel, were Darwinists. And uh, the influence was so pervasive that um, Mengele, of course, the most infamous uh, Nazi doctor, he got two PhDs, actually an MD and a PhD, and his PhD was in evolution. And he continued working in the camps, trying to demonstrate and document his theory of evolution from ape-like ancestors. And so in fact, a lot of the experiments, his infamous now experiments, they weren't, of course, he didn't regard them as infamous, but we do today and most right-thinking people regard them as infamous. But what he was trying to do was figure out what traits made a superior race. Why are blue eyes better? How do you get blue eyes? And so he did things like injected dyes into the eyes to see whether he could change the color to try to understand the source, the color of blue eyes. And of course, most of these experiments were, were, were foolish. And today we recognize not all, but most of them as being brutal and in many ways beyond foolish. Because we know that the pigment color is on the iris diaphragm. It's not a dye that's into the eye. But of course, he was, I guess, trying to understand that further and was doing some foolish experiments on the Jewish people. He felt they're gonna die anyways, then why not just learn something? Why not advance science through their death so their death has some meaning, some purpose beyond just trying to kill them? Ironically though, one of the doctors he worked with very close was a Jewish doctor. And Mengele said to him, you know, in the end, you're gonna end up like these people are. And uh, he, of course, he was concerned about that, but a Jewish doctor he worked with, they actually worked pretty well together and the Jewish doctor was very trained, very trained, very good doctor. And he was hoping, I guess, that at the end of the war, he would be spared because of the contribution he made in the camps. And I don't recall if he was or wasn't, but uh, the relationship they had was quite interesting how Mengele was so open. In fact, a lot of the research was done 
by the Jews who were exploited in the camp, who had medical training. Right, his and name was Bertold Epstein, was his name, and yeah, he. I mean, Mengele Epstein, told him, right. "I'm going to take your work product." Like he openly st stated, he was going to rip him off. So yeah, right. Doctor Epstein, yeah. Yeah. So Mengele also the the other thing that was curious is how ambitious he was, and you write about that in a book. Like he really wanted to. He thought he was going to achieve all these scientific breakthroughs by doing these tortures on little people or, you know, uh, was it the Lilliput troop family? It's just right. some of the most bizarre ideas. He, I mean, he really thought like he was really a mad scientist, like just out of his mind, but really thinking all that stuff. But their science at the time, like you write in your book, they didn't have any idea about genetics. They thought all of the power was in the blood, right? Yeah, they did, which today, of course, we see as foolish. But on the other hand, for much of history, we saw the, the genetic background, the genetic factors in the blood. In fact, we often talk about this. We talk about bloodlines, and we talk about uh, the importance of blood, and, and uh, we make blood packs and so on. So those phrases, phraseology is still with us. But of course, you recognize that, in fact, the blood cells are enucleated. The nucleus is removed. So there's no genes in the blood cell. And that's, of course, to give the blood cell more room to do its job. It doesn't need a nucleus because the dividing, of course, is from stem cells. And therefore, they thought it would be uh, advantageous to, to blame the blood on these things. But now we know that that's foolish. All right. One of the interesting things, too, is Mengele went underground and ended up dying in South Africa or South America. But his kind of influence, Vaughn, they're sure he was able to rehabilitate himself, which I think was, and a lot of these Nazis really did re rehabilitate himself, themselves. And, and it was just very strange that they could go through that, those horrors and come out the other side and still have careers. We tend to think of people as like Mengele as just evil people, period, that they're bad people. And I think in the book, I gave the example where he had a house which was on a curve and there were accidents occasionally that happened on that curve. And someone asked him if there was a bad accident that happened, would he go out and help the person? He said, well, of course I would. I would do what I could to help the person. Even if you know you're gonna be exposed as the infamous Mengele, would you still go out there and help the people? He said, well, yes, of course I would. I'm trained to help people. I have compassion for people. And of course I would do what I could to help people who had a accident in anywhere in front of my house, especially. And uh, so we, we label people as bad and we excuse their behavior by labeling them as evil, just or just evil people. But many of these people like Mengele were, were not evil people. They did very evil things and we can call them evil for what they did. But on the other hand, uh, many of the people that Mengele worked with, by the way, in the camps, even the Jews thought very well of him. They uh, had names for him uh, that were very positive. He was his grandpa, he was a good person. And he was in many ways a good person. But if you think about it, what he did could only be done by a person who was seen as good. If he was seen as a scoundrel and evil and sadistic and so on, he probably would not have been in the position he was and he probably would not have been able to do the evil he did. So they, many evil people have very good sides and this allows them to do the evil that they have done. This is true of mass murders in this country. When we discover who they are and what they did, we realized that you know some of these were really nice people and well-respected in the neighborhood, et cetera. 
But yet, why would they do the horrible things they did? Well, they were able to do that because they were well-respected and they were seen as, and they were in many ways as nice people. Right. I mean, it's really remarkable. Like he had all the best training, had a doctorate. I mean, and still they got, he got the nickname Angel of Death because he decided who lived and who died. You go to the left, you go to the right, right? So yeah, it's a real paradox. And even the same thing with Henry Ford. So he gets this rep reputation probably deservedly of being, you know, writing the international Jew, but then he's living next to a Jewish rabbi who thinks that Ford is you know, a top-notch character. It's, and you see some of that happening back in Nazi Germany too, where Nazis have kind of curious relationships with this so-called, you know, inferior race or whatever. Like this, it's just very odd how, how some of these, like you say, they have personally, they uh, have these kind and pleasant traits, but also some very pernicious ideas. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, we see this especially in this country when we have when we find out that our our neighbor, a male, murdered his wife, and we say they seem like such a nice family. They were so helpful, and they were such good neighbors. I just can't believe that he would actually do what he did. Well, that we find is not rare. That nice people can do awful things, and we see that especially in corrections when you look at uh, so many of these cases where when you ask people about what they thought about so and so, they say well, he was a nice person. I got along really well with him at work and he, we used to ride together and there were no problems. I can't believe that he would murder his family or his wife or his whoever. And so you can see the, the other side of people shows, but it doesn't show through normally in everyday conversation. It doesn't show until they do something horrible. Then of course people are surprised. Right, and uh, I mean, what do you see like this eugenics goes through the horrors of Nazi Germany and then there's still kind of post-war eugenics kind of ideas simmering around in California and even into, I mean, you talk about Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, where, where do you think we're at now? I mean, how do you see, do you still see this eugenics ideas kind of under a different guise or still happening or um, what's your kind of impression? Well, it's happening more in abortion when you do a sonogram and discover there's indications that this child is deformed well, maybe you should have an abortion now and take care of it. Down syndrome, of course, is the main issue. In some countries, they brag that they have no Down syndrome children, like I believe Iceland. And they have no Down syndrome children because they're all, they're all aborted. And uh, this is the idea that we want people, our children, to be bright, good-looking, beautiful, wonderful people. But the fact is, is that there are some good people who are not bright, who are not good looking. And of course, the best example, I think, is Down syndrome, because many, not all, of course, but many have a really wonderful personality. They're lovely kids, if you ever worked with them, which in the past I have. And so therefore, indeed, are we judging people on things that we probably shouldn't judge them on? And Down syndrome, among others, is, uh, is a good example. Asperger's right. syndrome is another example. They have indication of Asperger's syndrome, some parents would abort the child instead of having the child. But yet in many ways, Asperger's syndrome children, although they personality doesn't tend to be uh, award-winning, nonetheless, many of them are very, very bright and can do very well in limited areas. Right, they're like have amazing powers of focusing and not, uh, you know, not being distracted. 
And also you kind of see some of this movement, I think currently of this like late term abortion is really scary. Like the nine, like that idea is being bandied around that um, you can just abort any time. And I think that's also very eugenics. I mean, it's basically killing somebody. So some of these ideas are still filtering around. They may not be as, per, as obvious and pernicious as what the Nazis did, but there's still an undercurrent around. And some yeah. of these, you know, I mean, you, I mean, you look at Bill Gates and some of the stuff he said about vaccines and inoculations and what some of those in those, I think that the, the eugenics movement, there's still a presence there. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, we still have remnants of that. Those ideas are behind. Probably the best example is, is when it appears from the record of the test that a child is deformed and is going to be born severely deformed or somewhat deformed. And then they abort the child and they find the child is fully normal. And so that's that's a problem. That is, we don't have a hundred percent determination that indeed a child is going to be deformed in a certain way. That uh, you have some indications, of course, but it's not a hundred percent. So therefore, you're taking a, a taking a risk. Still, we want we want the ideal child, good looking, no problems, no deformities, bright, inquisitive, good personality. And uh, some of us have some of these traits, but not all of these traits. So therefore, it takes, as they say, all kinds of people to make a good world. And therefore, we have some people that don't seem to be contribute. But on the other hand, it's said that in their own way, everyone can contribute to a better world. And That's by right. looking at it that way, we can be less judgmental and less concerned about our, our perfect children. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. Where's the best place to get the book, um, Darwinian Eugenics and the Holocaust? Well, it's on Amazon, of course, and on uh, Barnes and Noble and any uh, online. Uh, uh, you can get it from uh, Walmart, but you have to special order it. So they, they can get the book. If you like to shop on Walmart, you can get it from them. So uh, probably Amazon is the favorite for most people. It's quick, it's easy, convenient, you get points and you have Amazon Prime, of course, you can save on postage, but uh, but anyways, it's done fairly well and it's I've gotten good feedback from it, partially because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, a lot of interesting events, especially I think IBM and how important they were in producing the uh, Holocaust and enabling it to occur. And from an industry standpoint, you have to realize that they're in business to sell products and war for many people allows them to sell more of what they make. And therefore they're saying, look, we're not starting the war. We're not, we're, we're not taking sides because in Germany, they have their arguments and some of their arguments are good and we have our arguments. We're not, you know, we're just building materials for each side. And of course they did. And, uh, and that was uh, with uh, many, not only uh, IBM, but of course Kodak and Ford, you can see has some involvement. And although after the war was over and they realized the horrors that were caused, a lot of the companies backed away and tried to uh, say, well, we didn't make the contribution that it's alleged. And some of them would try to rectify what they did by giving money to support the, the, the Jews in Nazi Germany that survived. And so, uh, and you have to realize during the war, it's us against them. And yeah, I know they're all bad and we're all good, but I don't think people realize by and large what was going on in World War II until after the war was over and we got pictures of the camps and the, numbers of how many people were killed. And therefore, uh, we didn't realize the, the full enormity of it until after the war was over. So when the war happens, it's 
and uh, I mean, it just got worse over time. And I mean, yeah. So, and you have a website, right, Jerry? Uh, yeah, well, I have a website. It, uh, I should send you. It's a creation evolution. And on that website, I have a number of articles that I wrote as well as other books. Crevos, Crevo, I guess, C-R-E-V-O. And if you just plug my name in the internet, Jerry Bergman, you get all kinds of stuff. So good and bad. So uh, that's one way to, uh, I had a website in the past, but it takes so much time to operate it. And I spend my time writing books and, and I'm uh, doing quite a bit of writing now. I have, should have three books out this year. So oh, congratulations. That's great. What are, do you want to, do you have any working titles or are you able to? Well, one you... is the other side of the scopes trial. And I point out that, uh, a lot of books written on the Scopes trial, probably a hundred I have in my library alone, either full books or part of the books. And uh, there are some books critical of the Scopes trial, but mine's the only one that points out the really issue at the Scopes trial was not religion, but race. And this well-documented, the book that they used in the teaching of evolution was a racist book, the Hunter biology book called Civic Biology. And so race was really central in the Scopes trial, and it's there, it's in the literature, but on the other hand, my book focuses on the importance of uh, race in the trial and what happened and why. So we often hear about the Scopes trial and it's distorted that a bunch of narrow-minded fundamentalists were fighting against the enlightened liberals, and of course, that's not the case at all. I'm uh, not surprised, right? What was the famous movie, Inherit the Wind, is that it? Inherit the Wind, which is a appalling distortion of what happened, yeah. Very politically, yeah. Um, well, I look forward to uh, seeing that book, and I'd love to have you back and talk about that once it once it's uh, published. So just let me know. But again, okay. the title, great. The title of this book is Darwinian Eugenics and the Holocaust: American Industrial Involvement by Dr. Jerry Bergman, published February 2020. Jerry, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Good to be right, here.